Psalm 40. That was lovely. Thank you. Well, my name is Melissa. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to open the word for us today. And sometimes opening the word looks like last time I preached, which was the book of Jude. It's the only sermon many of you have ever heard on Jude. I know that to be true. And then sometimes you get this passage. <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> like what happened just, sorry. Maybe somebody could get me some water. I feel I'm some generous soul. Yes, thank you. Or else I'm going to be coughing in the mic. It will be bad for everybody. Sometimes, <laughs> nice job. Sometimes you get a passage like this where there's just so many amazing directions you could go with the text. Now, if you've been here a bit, Donna, bless you, sweet lamb. So nice. Thank you. I think we're ready to go. All right. So if you've been around here at all or hung out with me much, you know that I used to teach elementary school. It's all that I saw myself doing. It was what I trained to do, and I did that career for a while. And when I started out teaching, because I was a Spanish minor, and I'd been taking Spanish classes from seventh grade all the way on through my time at the university, and I had a lot of Spanish up here, but I could not really access it here, I decided to move outside the country and immerse myself. So I got a teaching job in Costa Rica, <clears throat> so I could do that very thing, immerse myself in Spanish. But I actually taught in English, because I taught at a school that was an English academy, and I actually taught the subject of English to sixth graders. Now, my sixth graders had been attending the school, most of them since they were in preschool. And so they could speak, Spanish, speak English sorry, very well, but they were miserable writers and readers of, of English, just dreadful. And so I noticed something with them as it was my task to help kind of align the speaking, the reading, and the writing of English. I noticed something that they would tend to do. And as a second language learner myself, it's something that I often struggle with when I'm speaking Spanish, and it's this. It's that when you're trying to express something that's emotional or more meaningful, when you really care about what you're saying, because you want to get it right and you don't want to get tripped up in language, you strip it back to something extremely basic and you end up using like super fundamental primary sentence structure. So this happens to me all the time. When I go to Mexico, my best friend in Mexico makes fun of me on a regular basis because while I can generally operate at it like a college level of Spanish speaking when I'm talking about most things, when I start saying things like a compliment to his wife about how much I love her, or if I'm talking about what God is doing in my life, or if I'm talking about an issue I care about, it's suddenly like I do, 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 morph into like a first grader, and my sentences become like, God is neat, because I don't want to mess up what I'm saying. I want to go to there. Like, that's how I end up sounding, and he's like, wow, in like five minutes, you went from like here to here. Uh, and so my students would do this all the time. And one of my great tasks was to help them understand that it's okay to take bigger risks with language when you're describing things. And uh, I used a technique that I was taught in my teacher training called show, not tell. And it's this fundamental principle that if there's a way to describe what you're talking about rather than just flatly tell it like it is, for one, you're going to engage your listener better. And secondly, it's going to create a richer, fuller idea in general. Mark Twain, or Samuel Clemens, whatever you prefer, puts it this way. He says, don't tell us the old lady screamed 
bring her on stage and let her scream. So that's kind of what the concept is. And I want to show you what that looks like, okay? So if you were here on Christmas Eve, you heard me talk about a camp that I used to run when I worked at the university next door, and that I had this wild idea that I would take them on a 36-hour road trip, 200 teens by bus from Tijuana to Cabo San Lucas. That is a very long time with teenagers in, well, we'll get to it. So, um, you guys ready up there? Okay, great. So, if I wanted to talk about the heat that we experienced in the middle of July, I would tell it like this if I were just going to tell it as it is. Here it is. What was I thinking? Taking 200 teens to the southernmost tip of Baja California in the middle of July. We spent two weeks in the hottest environment I'd ever been in, and I grew up in Phoenix. It was consistently 115 degrees with 90% humidity and not one bit of air conditioning. Now, there's nothing wrong with this paragraph. I, I think it's finely constructed. I hope you agree with me. It's a nice, nice paragraph. But I, I have to say, this is like a little window into a really significant period of my life. That trip, though really hot and exhausting and kind of hard to run a camp on the move, was this vocational game changer for me, really. It was what solidified my call to ministry and my desire to be formal clergy. It's uh, where I formed some relationships with my staff that are, have become people who are my best friends to this day. Um, and it just had these shocking, remarkable experiences like being so hot that when you take a sip of water, you immediately sweat it out, which I have never had happen to me before. Like, it just, where did it go? The water is gone. So I would like to now show you, not tell you, what this was like. And hopefully this is an improvement on the telling. Here we go. You know things aren't good when you and your camp of 200 teens are drinking gallons of water nonstop. There are only two bathrooms for everyone to use, and there's never a line for any of the bathrooms. And somehow, even more shocking than non-existent bathroom use was the size of the flying cockroaches that sought shelter from the blistering 115-degree heat in the shade of our 100-degree tents. That's better, right? It's a little bit better. Okay. I don't, I'm not, I don't think you think it's better. I think it's better. Okay. So... I showed, I, I showed you, I think. So, you're going to do it now. Um, I'm like in sixth grade form now. So, here we go. You have an assignment. Okay, you can grab a pen. There's some in the black notebooks. You can use your smartphone. You can pull those out. Some of you already have them out. I see you. Or you can just think about it, okay? You can just think about it. So, I'm going to give you a tell sentence. That lecture was far too long. What a boring sentence. I would like you to spice it up. You get to show. So, Take a moment, write a better sentence than that. Now in first service, we have some serious writing professors, and they all came up to show me after the service their sentence. It was really funny. All right, go ahead and turn to your neighbor and share your improved sentence. Go for it. <laughs> you need more time. <clears throat> All right. So, do we have any brave soul who would say theirs? 
to the church this morning? Anyone? Not one? Oh, yes, Mark. And then, yes. Oh, that's so good. The lecture made the Hundred Year War seem short. Nice. Hopefully it was a history lecture and that would have been perfect. Yes. And over here. Nicely done, way better than that sentence. So I think you have grasped the concept. Um, so with that in mind, that's going to be an important concept for us as we move through the passage that Haplin just read for us. So let's dive into this John passage. Here in John, um, in chapter 1, we see Jesus as the original, kind of the old school show, not teller. He, in fact, takes this concept of show, not tell to a whole other level. He doesn't tell it all. In fact, when he shows, he doesn't even show with words, really. He instead shows with his life. Jesus goes to a whole different place of instead of show, not tell, it's be, not tell. We're going to come back to this moment in just a bit, but I want to first zoom out to what's happening in the chapter at large because I think the context really matters. We've been spending uh, last week in John 1. Again, here we are in John 1. And John chapter 1 is this really poetic and multi-layered look at who Jesus is. And right up front, at the beginning of the chapter, you know how that goes, most of you, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God. In that description of Jesus, we get these really rich metaphors and imagery that John leans on to try to grasp who he understands Jesus to be. And I want to walk through those because I think it's important for us to have those in mind as we then look ahead to this story of Jesus that Haplin read for us. So I'm going to just take us to the beginning of John. And this isn't all the verses in the beginning, but it's a good section of them. And the reason why I chose these is because each of these verses holds a metaphor, an image, a description of Jesus. Because that's what this chapter is about. It's giving us a sense of who Jesus is. And if we go line by line, and you, I don't know if you can see, I've bolded and used the color orange on some of these. It'll get clearer in a moment. We see that John names Jesus as God right up front. Oops. That Jesus is described as the life, also described as the true light. That Jesus has been given power to name us children of God. That Jesus became flesh and lived among us super important statement about Jesus, and that Jesus is grace and truth. So all these things get named up front, and we can see them here as just the bolded pieces are remaining here for us. And I also really love what the message version of the Bible does, especially with pieces of scripture that already lean heavily on metaphor and imagery. So I really like how the writer of the message does that. So we're going to look at the same section of scripture, but from the message. So these are those same verses, and we'll go line by line again, that Jesus here is also named God, that Jesus is also referred to as life, that Jesus is the life light, the real thing, that Jesus made us to be our true selves, our true child of God's selves. I really like that. That Jesus became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I think is a great way of talking about Jesus. That Jesus is generous inside and out, true from start to finish, gift upon gift upon gift. 
And these are some of those rich metaphors and images and descriptions that we get in this version. So side by side, they look like this. And I'm going to leave this up here for us because we'll refer to this a bit. This list here is who we believers proclaim Jesus to be. All of these mysterious, miraculous, glorious things. That Jesus is light. That Jesus is both God and human. That Jesus is grace. Jesus embodies truth. And John the Baptist, now not the John who's writing this book. That's the gospel writer John. This is John the Baptist who John writes about. It's confusing, two Johns. But John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin, he knows these things to be true about Jesus. He's been given special insight. He's a prophet sent to speak about Jesus. And he holds this special place in history. He's the one who is helping the people understand that their Messiah is finally on his way. And where our passage has us today is when Jesus arrives on the scene and he basically says, hey everybody, here I am. Here I am to start my ministry. Now John the Baptist has been talking about him. He's been preparing the way. And the people who've been listening and are at least a little bit curious about who Jesus is have their eyes open a bit wider. They're going to be looking to see if any of it is true. And Jesus does show up, and it's sort of like John goes, hey, everybody, yes, 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 this is him, remember? I was talking about him. There he is, right there. That is him, the Lamb of God. Now, these are Jewish people, largely, that he's speaking to. So it's a very big deal that when he points out Jesus and he says, everybody, he showed up. Remember the guy I've been talking to you about, the Lamb of God? It's a very big deal that he talks about the lamb. Because Jews know a bit about lambs, and they know what lambs are for, and they know about sacrifice. And so this makes them probably more intrigued to hear this use of lamb of God. And two of the men take their teacher John seriously, or at least curiously, and they start walking after Jesus. So John goes, there's Jesus, that's the guy, and they just start walking after him. And this whole scene is really endearing to me because it seems that they just sort of instinctively just start walking in this direction, like, oh, there he is. Let's, let's go. Let's just follow this guy. And, and there's some cues in the text for why I think that they weren't really even totally aware of what they were doing. I don't know if they intended to talk to him. I just think they were super interested in where this, this big talked about anticipated guy is going. And so they just kind of get in line. And we get in, through scripture, we get in on this wonderful, almost like a candid camera moment, this moment where Jesus turns around and acknowledges them, and then they seem sort of like starstruck or tongue-tied. And it's funny how celebrities or famous people or people we've been waiting to meet for a long time do this to us. Probably the best example for me in my life is when I met a Christian music star that I grew up adoring, the dear Crystal Lewis. Does anybody know Crystal Lewis? Yes. I got some claps? Yes. People get ready. Jesus is coming. Yeah. Okay. So I grew up in a household that, like, really revolved around Christian contemporary music. And Crystal Lewis was a big deal. And Crystal Lewis, if you don't know her, she's, like, this tall with the voice of someone this tall. She can really belt. She's, like, an amazing singer. And in college, I started forming a friendship with a girl, Cassie. And when I found out that Cassie was Crystal Lewis's sister... I was like, oh my goodness, I might meet Crystal Lewis someday. And it turns out we became very good friends. She's one of my best friends to this day. And it was not just because of Crystal. Cassie is wonderful, and I love her for who she is. But a perk of being in her bridal party was that I got to go to her bachelorette. 
And it was going to be at Crystal's house. So I'm like, oh, my goodness. So I'm driving up the five to Newport Beach, and I'm like, be cool, be cool. It's cool. You can talk to Crystal. It's cool. But I'm like a little bit starstruck. I'm a little bit excited. And upon arrival, I walk in, and Crystal announces, and she's like full of energy and a really fun person, and she announces, we're going to karaoke. And I was like, yes, I love karaoke. I'm not a singer, but I love karaoke. So I like hop up there, flip through, find a song. I find a song that I think I can have fun with, that I know the motions to, or motions I'm going to make up. And as I start, and I'm like, this is a great note to start with with, my, with Crystal, my gal. You know, she's going to be impressed that I'm up here. I got no shame. Well, she, like, from the kitchen hears the song, and she's like, I love that song. And so she comes and joins me, and I'm like, no. She's like a Grammy-nominated artist. She's won, like, 15 Dove Awards. She's a really good singer, okay? So she comes up, and I'm, like, suddenly trying to sing better and be, like, classy with my emotions, you know? And the there's this bridge in the song where there, I cannot, there's no words or motions to distract. There's just like a long bridge. I did not plan for that. So I decide, I'm going to have some fun. You know, I'm going to talk to Crystal. It's cool. And I turn to her, and I suddenly went blank. And she's just staring at me, and I go, you are Crystal Lewis. <laughs> and she's like, sure am. Yep, yep, yep. Welcome to my house, you know. And then, like, two more times, I'm just stuck there. But you're Crystal Lewis. <laughs> and after a couple of times, I literally, I literally dropped the mic, and I left. And she finished the song. We are now pretty good friends. But, um, my goodness, I was, I was just caught off guard um, in that moment. And so, back to our story. Our two followers are trailing Jesus, I think just because they're curious. I don't know if they plan to talk to him. When Jesus turns around and in essence says, hey, hey, what's going on? In some versions, Jesus says, what do you want? Which is kind of sassy of Jesus, really. It's his first public utterance in ministry, and he's like, what, what do you want? Um, in some versions, he says, what are you after? Which kind of makes him feel like British to me. Like, what you after? And in a version I really like, he says, he says what are you looking for? And it's in this moment that these guys, I feel like they must have turned to each other and been like, dang it, he saw us. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, he saw us. And the reason why I think that they're, they're kind of stunned is because their answer does not make sense, really. He says, what are you after? What are you looking for? And they go, where are you staying? It's like, <laughs> like I, I, I feel like they just were like, uh, uh. It'd be cool to know where Jesus lives, you know? So... It's this simple question, where are you staying? And of all the questions that Jesus gets bombarded with throughout his life and ministry, this is like a super softball, right? Like a super, super easy question to answer. Where are you staying? All he would have to do is say Nazareth or my mom's house or that way. But Jesus instead says, come, come and see. Jesus, in this moment, does the ultimate show-not-tell. <clears throat> he invites them to come. No details, no fancy selling tricks or tactics, just come and see. Now, this very brief interaction with Jesus tells us so much about Christ's character that I think is really important. In this brief exchange, we see that Jesus 
notices people. I think it's, it's really important to recognize that Jesus understands that his presence creates some confusion and questions for people. Um, we see in this story that Jesus is generous, that Jesus wants people to come and witness his life. We see that Jesus wants to spend time with people. And all of those are, would make a fabulous direction for us to go with this sermon in thinking about what Jesus' character tells us about who we should be. But what, I'd, what I'm compelled to do this morning is to stay in this conversation between these two guys and Jesus because I think there's a lot there for us today. Now, last May, I preached on Pentecost, and it was out of the book of John then as well. And at that time, I was looking in the chapters 14 through 17, and I was taken, and I shared this with you, I was taken by how many times the word remain appears in those four chapters. It's 11 times. And remain can be translated as reside or abide. But it's very important to notice that these themes of location, of residence, of abiding somewhere are central throughout John. John uses this a lot. And that, that John decides to highlight this interaction between Jesus and these two men and that John makes this the first story of Jesus's adult ministry, it tells us, look here, much like John the Baptist did, look here, this is important, what I'm doing here. And when the men ask Jesus where he's staying, it provides for us, the hearers and the readers of this story, an example of how we are to approach God. As I read and reread this passage, I can't get away from how similar this very quick interaction, this quick conversation with Jesus that these guys have, is so similar to ones that I have with Jesus. It's like God is saying to me so often, Hey, Melissa, what are you looking for? What are you after? Melissa, what is it that you want? And then like these guys, I find myself often saying, Well, God, where are you? Where are you you staying? Where are you at? And then so often, it seems as though God is saying, come find out. And this is not really a satisfying answer most of the time, right? Come find out. It feels like, come on, God, would you just tell me where you are? And then I will go there. Just make it clear. And I think that so much of that question, where are you, God, comes from a place in me that really would like to find out where God is so God can come to me. Come to me, God, in this moment of my confusion and give me clarity. God, I am afraid, so bring me your peace. God, I'm in the midst of an overwhelming situation. Can you come and shine your light? And nothing is wrong with those prayers. In fact, those are very faithful prayers to pray. But those are sometimes safer prayers than the prayers that I want to pray or should be praying. I wonder if the disciples knew what they were getting into with their question. It seems that they didn't overthink it. They didn't pre-plan it. They were curious people. And they wondered where this Messiah Jesus might spend his time and where might he be making his home. It's a fine question. And it's a question that I'm positive they expected to receive a basic, informative answer to. Something that they could run back and share with John the Baptist or share with their moms at home or their friends. Hey, You'll never believe it. I met this guy. I met Jesus. And guess what? I know where he lives. Like, that would be kind of a cool thing to claim. 
But the simple question that they had for whatever their intention was, or lack of intention, gave this life-altering response from Jesus. Jesus says, come, come with me. Come and see where I live. Come and see where I go. The things that I do, where I will take you. I can't answer your question easily because there's no easy answer to that question. I am on the move. I am love, but you are so invited to come with me. So come, trust me, follow me. It would be so much easier for us, wouldn't it? So much more efficient and clearer if God just told us straight up where to find God. And yet, over and over again, I find that God prefers showing us over telling us. God asks, what do you want? What are you looking for? We say, where are you? Where are you staying? And God says, come and see. In practical terms, with the everyday decisions and the big life questions that I have that I know are not unlike the ones that you share. I often think about following Jesus like having just a little bit of light in front of me. That I know enough to step in that light, but I don't get light for the whole road. And each step in the direction of that light is another movement forward in this walk of faith. And even this gorgeous description, these metaphors that John gives us, cannot capture what it is to actually experience Jesus. To see the light that comes into the darkness. To know deep in our souls that we belong to God as God's children. To be given grace. The telling of these saving things, testifying, sharing, witnessing, is necessary. Absolutely. But the showing of them to us through the mysterious movement and presence of God is this whole other level, right? We accept God's invitation to come. And when we follow then we're able to see. Recently, over the holidays, I was speaking with someone I've known for a very, very long time who has been skeptical about God, but I think is mostly skeptical about religion. We are close, and she respects, really respects my commitments to God, to my faith, to the church, and to ministry work. But she's baffled that I can believe. And we rarely talk about Christianity. It's not something she wants to usually discuss. But here we were. And she was asking me something I've been hoping she'd ask me for a long time, which is not to explain theology, but is to share how it is that I can believe. And I found myself in a conundrum because my words seem to fail me when I go to describe this life-giving Christ who time and again makes a way for me and with me. And at the end of the day, even that is mystery to me. It's something beyond even my very best words. As John's chapter goes on, this section is here at the end, and I want to read it together. I'll read it for us. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and there he found Philip, and he said to Philip, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, we have found him about whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote. It's Jesus, son of, jo son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, well, does anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, and catch it. Catch what Philip says. Come and see. 
come and see. These words that Christ used, come and see, Philip is now taking on. Philip is already learning from his brand new teacher. The ultimate answer. Show, not tell. You want to know who Christ is? Come with me. Come. Let us seek, find, and see Christ together. I'm going to invite our band to come up as they prepare to lead us in worship at the close of the service. And if you would join me in prayer. God, it is a tremendous thing to have this community of people who we can come to you together with, who we can seek you together with, who we can lean into trust that you will be found together with. God, it is, um, a, it is a, it's a chancy thing, this walk of faith. It is not always so certain and so clear. And we would so love sometimes for it to be so easily spelled out. And yet it is when we come at the invitation that you've given us so openly, it is when we come, when we expect that we'll find something in coming, that our eyes are opened and that we do see in deeper ways. And I ask that you increase our faith, that you would use each of us to sharpen each other, that we would be faithful in inviting others along to come and see. We thank you for the word today, God, for these stories and the ways that we get these accounts of Jesus and who Jesus was and is, and that we can find ourselves in these plain and ordinary people that are just like us. Give us, God, a boldness to move where you are, to follow your invitation, to trust in you and to do this together. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thank you.